0: was a very discreet person she never shared any information about people's finances, their giving and I didn't want to know so I don't know what anybody gives to the church I don't want to know I talk about money frequently enough but I just don't want to know the records I'm going to leave that between you and our financial secretary and the Lord so she was very discreet and she thought that she wasn't revealing anything to me when the week after the missions conference she stopped me in the hallway and she said Sandy a strange thing happened at the missions conference. I said, what's that? And she said, we had a person who's a non-member who pledged, who get put in a check for $25,000. So I feigned total ignorance and surprise. And I said, now that really is surprising. That really is a mystery. I, who could figure out how that happened? So I just left and walked down the hall and I opened the door and went to my study, closed the door and went, Yes! <laughs> Not because of $25,000, but because Bob got converted. And Martin Luther said the last thing to get converted in a man is his pocketbook. So I knew we had a convert. But here's the point I'm making today as we look at this text. Does anybody around here know about this? Could someone say that about Christchurch? They're newly converted, excited about the Lord, would they come here for a day and say, does anybody here know about this? In other words, is anybody here living the normal Christian life, which is to be full of life and joy and gratitude, where he has captivated our minds and hearts and taken over our conversations because we are taken up with him. That's normal when you're in love. Vance Havner, the great southern preacher, said, revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. And that's what it is. You know, when my Chinese friends come here for the first time, one of the comments they make about marriage in the evangelical church is they say, These old people actually love each other. (laughs) You know, and they say, where I'm from, it's just kind of ordinary, you know, it's just functional, you just do your job, but these people actually love each other. And if you're married with someone like I am for 49 and a half years, you know that you have plenty of moments when you think, and I wonder what it'd be like if I hadn't married him. (laughs) Might be better. We have all kinds of reasons to drift from each other. We have to be renewed in our love for each other. Loving each other is an intentional thing. And you younger married ones, you'll find if you hang in there, which I hope you will, not just for your good but for God's glory, you'll find that you're going to have a really, really good friend because you've cultivated love for each other. You've been renewed in your love. So that's what we're looking at. How can that be the case with me? How can I live a life of love? I know I'm loved by him and I'm enjoying giving him my love. How can I be renewed? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question because it's in the text. Let's read it again. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I want to look at the first half of that verse with you as to the four conditions that God gives us that we may be renewed and refreshed and revived, that we may just fall in love with him all over again. What are those? Well, he says, first of all, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Now, what I want us to notice is that in 2 Chronicles 7.14 serves the same purpose as does Acts 1.8 in the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 is what we call a programmatic verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you'll look at then the outline of Acts, you have the Spirit's power expressed in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and even Samaria with Philip, Acts 8, and then through the Apostle Paul largely to the ends of the earth. So eight is the programmatic verse. It sets the outline for the entire book of Acts. That's what this verse is doing. It's setting the outline for 2 Chronicles, his second half of Chronicles. And the way that happens is the chronicler takes each one of these words, humble, humble yourself, prayer, seeking the Lord, and turning. And in each case, there is a Judah king who highlights this one practice for us. And shows us how it works, and this is the big difference between First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, with First and Second Chronicles. The Chronicler is showing you how revival actually works through various kingly organizations and administrations. Now you know the kingdom was divided after Solomon. Uh, for. Solomon's sins, but also because of Rehoboam's, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Rehoboam's sins, Rehoboam was proud. And I want you to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 10, 11, and 12 with me for just a minute. And you'll see that because of Rehoboam's pride, the kingdom was indeed definitively divided. It was divided because of Solomon, but it was confirmed in its division because of Rehoboam's pride. In the northern kingdom, there are 19 kings. After Solomon, go to Jeroboam, and then there are 19 kings. They're all bad. There's not one good king ever in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, there are 20 kings. Seven or eight of them are okay. They're no perfect kings. There's no real David But there are some about whom it is said they walked in the ways of the Lord. Seven or eight. Of the good kings in the south, all of them experienced revival. That's the chronicler's point. If you want Israel to be great again, you'll see the temple restored, the priesthood restored, the Davidic kingdom restored, and it will come through spiritual revival. Now, let us pause for just a moment to say, The point of the chronicler is not make Jerusalem great again. And our point is not make America great again. It's not. Our goal is to see the church revived again. And for me to be revived for this purpose. To make his name great again. We're not just looking for personal experiences, spiritual fervors. We're looking for him. And we want to exalt him. That's what we're looking for in revival. So just as in Barvis on the Isle of Lewis, we want to be able to say, God came to Christ church. God has come to me. God has come to my family. So let's look at the life of Rehoboam. Let me just give you the story for because of time. Rehoboam had an opportunity to reunite northern and southern kingdom after it was divided after Solomon's sin. Solomon, of course, had too many wives with too many idols and Solomon gave his own heart away at the end of his life. It's a terrible tragedy and God split the kingdom. Took 10 tribes and said, I'm just going to leave you Judah and Benjamin. His son, Rehoboam, made an effort to see if he could reunite them. And here's what he, he was told. He was told by the northerners, look, your father taxes heavily. If you'll lighten the load, we'll give it a serious consideration. And Rehoboam goes to the old men, and they say, you should take them up on it. Solomon did tax heavily. You're a young man. You're just starting out. Humble yourself and lighten the load and you might be able to see the kingdom restored. That was the advice of the old man. The young man, his peers, said to him, you tell them that your little finger is thicker than your dad's thigh. They thought they were led heavily from Solomon. Well, they got another thing coming with you. Look, you all choose your own advisors and you decide whose advice you're going to take. So Rehoboam decided to take his young people's advice. And it was just sheer pride. That's chapter 10. Chapter 11, he builds up the kingdom. He fortifies it. And if you get to the beginning of chapter 12, look what it says. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong. So Rehoboam says, okay, you guys are going to, Leave us, I'll just strengthen the southern kingdom, and we'll see what you think about that. He was depending upon himself. And you get that in the next half of that verse when it says, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with it. Your most dangerous spot is when you made straight A's. Your most dangerous spot is when you made the most money you ever made. Your most dangerous spot is when you won the conference championship. Your most dangerous spot is when you're the most popular. Watch out. Because you tend then to think, you know what, I can do this. This is the essence of pride, it is the number one enemy of spiritual renewal. Number one. And you go back to Genesis 3 and you see where it started. You can be like God. Pride destroys relationships. You know that. As Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, pride is the very thing in other people that you hate the most. It's the very thing in you to which you are most blind. So we must learn to humble ourselves, which means, among other things, learning that you cannot be successful by your own innovation, your own good looks, your own savvy, your own business ability, your own popularity. You can't do it. You're completely dependent upon the Lord. That's what Rehoboam did. And when you get to verse 12, you read the conclusion. Conditions were good in Judah. There's the healing of the land. So, Rehoboam is the example of humility. And you'll find that very thing often in the text itself about Rehoboam. Look, for example, verse 6. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. So, in humility, you put yourself back where you belong and you put God back where he belongs. He is on the throne and he is right. He was right to send the pandemic. He was right to give us political chaos. He was right to give us a $28 trillion national debt, which I despise. But I worship Him, and He is righteous in all of His ways. That's no excuse for evil. It's no excuse for us tolerating evil in the public life. But we know we're being disciplined by him. The Lord is right. And the only path to anybody's success or any nation's success is to put the Lord back on his throne and to bow before him. You'll always find in revival in Chronicles that people fall on their face in worship of the Lord and exalt him. So pride destroys social relationships, but it also viscerates the intimacy you have with God for obvious reasons. Pride displaces God. You have in your pride specifically abandoned the law and the Lord. That's what pride does. So of course he's offended, And that's the reason that the scriptures teach us God opposes the proud. He opposes them. He gives them pandemics and unresolvable debts and warfare, and the Chinese and the Russians. This is just the beginning of it. Because He opposes the proud, those who think they can make themselves successful. And there's a sense in which, even as a child, He's opposing us in our ways. When we act as though we don't need him. But when we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I'm nothing without you, and you are everything to me, he hears your prayer. He forgives your sins. He heals you. We were praying to be healed by Emmanuel just a moment ago. He heals you when you know you need to be healed. Do you know you need to be healed? That's Rehoboam. Secondly, he says, if my people will pray. We don't have time to go through these in detail, but in chapter 20, you get the great story of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat's prayer. He prayed. And you know what? His enemies were destroyed. They were beyond him. He couldn't couldn't accomplish what he needed to accomplish, but they were destroyed. They were defeated because he prayed. And he simply says, believe, hear me, Judah, and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is verse 20. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. Trust him in prayer. Pray reverently, pray fervently, pray often. And the historians of revival tell us There is no account of any revival anywhere that was not preceded by sustained prayer. And it's true with you and me as individuals. Would you know him intimately? Would you have that deep personal relationship with him? Are you praying? Have you looked at the Bible to see how Our fathers and mothers prayed. If you look at Mary's prayer, have you looked at Daniel's prayer, Nehemiah's prayer, David's prayers? And of course, you know, most of the Psalms, I discovered this some years ago, by David were written when he was in distress. If you're in distress, this is a great time to be renewed. David wrote his most profound Psalms of revival in his worst times when he was bereft of any human way of success and he knew he needed the Lord pray to him one woman asked her older mother one time mom I don't even know how to pray and she said honey just talk to him just talk to him talk to him he's your father so we see this in all the revivals let me go back to Barvis Lewis that I was telling you about let me tell you how that started with Christina and Peggy. Peggy was 84 and blind. Christina, in 1948, was 82 and crumpled over with arthritis. They could both barely survive, but they lived together and kind of covered for each other. And the Lord put it upon their hearts to start praying for revival in their little village. Now, other things happened. We don't have time to talk about it. But the historians of that revival go back to that little cottage where Peggy and Christina were praying fervently until 2 o'clock in the morning every night, weeks on end, for revival, for their church that they loved. And in that village, at that time it had 1,100 people in it. In one year, 300 people got converted because Peggy and Christina knew how to pray. It's an amazing story. Well, Jehoshaphat is our example of prayer. Let me just mention this one other instance. I mentioned the revival of 1858, Fulton Street. Let me tell you how that happened. A man named Jeremiah Lamphere, who was a layman, was burdened with, with revival, the need for revival. We had just had the panic of 1857 in America. And he, prayed for, he wanted to pray for a religious revival, so he put up a sign on his office door. Anybody who wants to come pray for revival come here at such and such a time and pray. Jeremiah Lamphere prayed by himself because nobody came. Next week, 15 people showed up. Before it was over, hundreds of thousands of people in New York City were praying every day for revival. Between March and May of 1958, 50,000 people were converted in Manhattan. Manhattan alone. Prayer. Don't think you're going to be revived. Christ church is going to be revived. Anything that's going to happen in this country is of significance. Apart from my people called by my name who humble themselves and pray. And then he said, seek my face. And on this one, you can turn back a few chapters in your Bible to chapter 15. You get to Asa. And seeking his face is stressed throughout the Chronicles. You get this word seek 29 times in Chronicles. But you get it nine of those 29 times in chapters 14 through 16 because Asa sought his face. We don't have time for his story this morning. But what does it mean to seek his face? First of all, in Asa's case, you can read the text, chapters 14 through 16. It meant to forsake other gods, the idols that were very popular in his day. Those idols tripped up Solomon. They tripped up many, many other Israelites. And they were tripping up the Judahites during Asa's reign. And he decided to forsake those idols. So it's like in the old liturgy, when you get married, do you take him forsaking all others? So when you get married, one of the things about marriage is you forsake romantic affection with anybody else. There's one person who gets your romantic affection, your devotion, you forsake all others. This is what it means to seek the Lord. It's like marriage. You forsake all others. He is the focus. He is the devotion. And you seek him. You want to know him. You want to be intimate with him. You want to have a successful marriage with him. And in order to have a successful marriage with God, you've got one perfect spouse and one very imperfect spouse, and that's you. So he's already perfect. You're the imperfect Now, if you're in human marriage, (laughs) it ain't that easy. You got two imperfect people, and it's difficult. They're both moving targets. But here, there's only one moving target. You're the only one moving. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you want to know him, and you're seeking him. And I want to say in this day in which we're living, especially with our children, one of the enemies of revival is the way your time is being consumed with things like this and large screen TVs and iPads and all kinds of distractions. I was talking with a couple of you just this weekend, and you were saying, you know, my time is when I get away from everything in the house and I'm out on my walk with me One reason for my three-mile walk is not just to keep my body in shape, but I'm seeking the Lord in those three miles. Nobody can talk to me. Uh, Chuck and I will text and talk, but if he calls on on my walk, I'll call him back later. I have 44 and a half minutes of time when I'm seeking the Lord. There are other times when I seek the Lord. One of the biggest enemies of seeking the Lord is the distribution of your time. And if you're typical as Presbyterians, who usually are some of the more successful people in life, is that you're spending far too much time on your success and on your pleasure and on your leisure and things that just distract you from life itself. If you want to have the fullness of life, you don't distract yourself from life. You enter into life and you devote yourself to life and the giver of life who is the Lord himself. And you come to him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You come in his mediation. You come on the merits of his blood with gratitude for what he's done. And you come thankfully to him. And you ask how you may serve him. And you enter into his presence with thanksgiving and with joy. You seek him. If you seek him, he says, I will hear your prayer. I'll forgive your sins. I'll heal you if you'll seek me. And that's exactly what Asa did. Some of you know the name Malcolm Muggeridge, who became a Christian as an Englishman late in life. He became a Christian at 65. He was a very famous journalist. He had traveled the world in the 20th century. He had interviewed every important political person in the world, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Roosevelt, Churchill, he knew them all. And he was very familiar with the ways of the world's greatest leaders. He gets converted at 65, and he makes a little movie right around 80 when he thinks he's about ready to die. And in the movie, this is what he said. He said, I've seen a lot of things in life. I've met a lot of men and a lot of women. But when I boil it all down, here's what it comes to seeking God and having sought him, finding him and having found him, loving him. Brothers and sisters, there is the fullness of life. If you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. Now lastly, you notice fourthly he says, and turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways and Probably the most prominent story here is the one of Hezekiah in chapters 28 to 30. And you'll find this word turning 14 times in 2 Chronicles. But you find it six times in just verses 6 through 9 in chapter 30. He says, O people of Israel, verse 6, return or turn to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again, to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, Your brothers and your children will find compassion and their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Do you think the Chronicler is making a point? Turn to him. It's the Hebrew word shuv. It's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, some of the time spiritually. About half of the time when it's used spiritually, it means to turn away from evil. And the other roughly half of the time, it means turn to the Lord. It's called repentance. Repentance is a gift from God that he gives his children so that we can know him. And the gift is that he empowers us to turn our back on wickedness. Burn the bridges, turn your back on it, have nothing to do with it, and turn toward Him. And the reason you turn away from these delightful little pleasures, and they are delightful in the short run, the reason you turn is because you've got a glimpse of Him. And you saw that He's more beautiful, He's more delightful, He's more desirable. I'd rather have Jesus than all the world affords. That's the reason you turn. You've caught a glimpse of Him. So you put your back on the temporary pleasures that lead to destruction and you turn to the permanent pleasure that leads to eternal life. It's an ongoing discipline in your life and this is the way you have life. When you're fooling around with pornography or soap operas or gossip or making as much money as you can to put away as much as you can to give as much as you can to your children so you can spoil them too. Instead of looking to have as much of him as you can have that this life will afford then you'll not know the fullness of life and the chronicler is saying to the Israelites under Persian rule have you thought about turning to the Lord have you thought about what Solomon said that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a disgrace to any people have you thought about what what Later will be said by James that if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you, says the Lord. So if you draw near to him, he draws near to you and gives you life, the highest pleasure in life. This is the summum bonum of human life, that the highest good is to know him and be intimate with him. So I have to say, when revival hits your life, this is what is taking place. I'll close with this. I, uh, in the early days of my conversion, I was converted at 25 years of age, which was 45 years ago. And one of the first things that we did was to get involved in our World Missions Conference. And there was a, an evangelist from Kenya who evangelized in Uganda named John Wilson. He had an English name. I've forgotten his African name, but he had an English name, John Wilson. One L in Wilson, mine has two L's. And uh, he stayed with us during the missions conference, so we got to know about him. And we were very interested to ask him about the famous East African revivals. He was right in the middle of it. Revivals in Kenya and Uganda that were very powerful. I'll never forget his answer when when we asked him, tell us about the East African revivals. What he said was, he said, Sunday and Allison, he said, what happened? was massive repentance. It was massive. Teachers, professors were apologizing to each other and to their students. Students were returning stolen pencils from the classrooms. People were reconciling relationships. He said it was a tornado of repentance. This is what it's like to have life. You know, in the... The the famous Belfast, Ireland revival, they said that when revival hit the shipyards, the shipworkers were returning so many stolen tools they had to build extra sheds to house it all. And they also said that the coal miners who went into the coal mines with their, their donkeys, you know, led the carts into the coal mines. The donkeys could not obey the orders anymore because the masters were no longer cursing. And the donkeys didn't recognize the orders. (laughs) And furthermore, that the taverns virtually emptied out. It was massive. Ladies and gentlemen, this is life. And you and I have no control over the nation. God does. We really don't have control over Christ's church. God does but you've been given self-control the gift of self-control and behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone will open the door and humble herself and pray and seek my face and turn from her wicked ways or his I will hear I will be intimate with you I will forgive you and I will heal you Let us pray. Father, for the great gift of life, we thank you. And for the great gift of renewal of life, revival, we thank you. And pray, God, come in your power. Revive our hearts. Revive your church. Revive this land. In Jesus' name, amen.